0: Reporting from around the world. It's time for Ion Travel with America's number one frontline travel news journalist, Peter Greenberg. And now, the man who travels over 400,000 miles each year, Peter
1: Greenberg. Hi, everybody. Peter Greenberg here, and welcome aboard another edition of Ion Travel for this second weekend of January 2024. I apologize for my hoarse voice, but as everybody knows, the weather's getting colder. And when you travel, these things happen. Uh, Lots of things to talk about this week on this second weekend of January 2024. Of course, we've been covering in the news all this week the incident on the Alaska Airlines 737, where the door panel blew out uh, at 16,000 feet. And we'll be talking about that a little bit later in the show. But first and foremost, that particular incident just happens to coincide with an anniversary, an anniversary that I remember very well because I was there and my first guest knows it better than anybody because he was the pilot. And I'm pleased to welcome back to the show someone i worked with before and continue to work with and happy to have him back. Captain Sully Sullenberger, captain. Welcome.
2: Thank you, Peter.
1: And again, apologies for my voice, but, but it's important that we, uh, that we talk. And in fact, when I think about this 15 years has flown by January 15th, 2009, uh, a day I will remember for a long time. We all sort of remember where we were <clears throat> and what we were doing. Uh, but at the same time, it seems either it was a million years ago or it was yesterday. I'm sure you have the same feelings.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's it's something that we think about. If not every day, we get reminders often uh, of, of it. And fortunately, it turned out to be a good news event at a time when we all needed it. Uh, so, I don't mind at all being reminded about something that when we work together, we could save every life that day.
1: And of course, uh, we continue to talk about flight 1549 in terms of the lessons that were learned and hopefully the lessons that were applied. When you think about that, you know, you have become a, a major advocate of airline safety. I'm sure you've been busy this week alone talking about the Alaskan Airlines flight, but The good news, I suppose, is that we continue to celebrate the 30 safest years in aviation safety since aviation began, at least commercial aviation. Uh, But there are still problems.
2: Yeah, I mean, what we've done in in improving air safety has been remarkable. In fact, I think for many of us, 30 or 40 years ago, we would have not thought it possible to go a dozen years in this country without an airline crash. and. And we've made it ultra safe, but we shouldn't rest on our laurels. We need to remember that we need to keep on working. And that's what we owe everyone who flies passengers and crew alike to continue to learn and improve safety based upon not just accidents, but incidents.
1: You know, I'm reminded of three crashes. Uh, Of course, the American Airlines crash in November of 2001 in Rockaway Bay. When the when the tail fell off on t- uh, right after takeoff, then there was the Comair flight in Lexington, and then a, a, a story that I covered actually with your co-pilot from 1549, Jeffrey Skiles, the the crash of Colgan Air near Buffalo back in 2009.
2: Yeah, that was uh, just you know, a few weeks after our flight, and and I think they were bookends. You know, something that went right and something that went wrong, and. Uh, I'm glad you mentioned our first officer, now captain, Jeff Skiles. He's younger than I am. He's still working at American Airlines. <laughs> and, um, yeah, and he was also involved uh, with the, uh, the aftermath of the Colgan Air 3407 and the, and the loss of 50 lives, 49 on the airplane, one person whose house was struck by the wreckage. Um, I've worked closely with Jeff and with the Buffalo families to try to improve aviation safety, and I think it was largely through their efforts that Congress passed and and, uh, President Obama signed the 2010 Aviation Safety Act that has done so much uh, in six important areas to improve pilot experience, pilot training, pilot records, uh, crew duty times. We still have a lot of work to do though. We're not done yet.
1: Well, you know, you talk about the the Colgan air crash and the the legislation that was passed. Uh, It really dealt with crew training, number of hours before you could sit in the left seat Uh, and at the same time we still have a pilot shortage in this country
2: well you know there there is a great tension as always in in aviation as in every industry between what's expedient and what's cheapest and what's best and i've known for many years and in all my keynote talks i always talk about how important it is for uh, those in charge uh, everyone who's leading any organization to understand that there's a strong business case for quality and safety in every endeavor, whether it's in business, in healthcare, in aviation, or in medicine, uh, that getting it right the first time is always cheaper than getting it wrong and have to try to fix it after the fact. Uh, and then when lives are lost, there's no remedy
1: for that. Well, of course, that calls into, into focus the, the culture of safety and the relationship between federal regulators and manufacturers and the airlines themselves.
2: Exactly. And it's important that regulators not be captured by industry, which we've seen happen too much in this country in a variety of domains. I'm, I'm encouraged that after Flight 1549 since Jeff and I had a, a greater voice to talk about these things, we have used that voice for good. In fact we we felt an obligation to do so. We felt that we owed it to our colleagues still working who don't have as great a voice as we and that to not use this voice, to just walk into the sunset and, and walk away without trying to move the needle in the right direction would be a dereliction of duty. And we just couldn't do that. So those those efforts continue. We testified before congressional committees many times given interviews like this to remind people that in spite of how routine and commonplace air travel has become we shouldn't take it for granted because it's really an amazing thing, a a wondrous thing to do to push a tube filled with people through the upper atmosphere seven or eight miles above the earth at eighty percent of the speed of sound in a hostile environment with outside air pressure one quarter that at the surface and outside temperatures to minus seventy and we must return that, that tube built with people to the surface safely every time. In this country alone, you know, 28,000 times a day, 10.2 million
1: times a year. And to think that so many of us are concerned with this weather, and now we get good Wi-Fi on the plane.
2: Right. I mean, it's, um, and so my, my advice to everyone who flies is to do what my family and I do, is um, pay attention to the flight attendants' demonstration know where the exits are, how they operate, if they're ahead of you or behind you, how many rows, Uh, keep your seatbelt fastened during the flight. That's the single most important thing that you can do to to keep yourself safe. And that's a matter of personal responsibility.
1: You know, when we come back, we'll be coming back on the second hour to have a continuing conversation with Captain Sully Sullenberger. I wanna talk to you about the amazing uh, evacuation of the Airbus 350 in Japan and of course, the continuing investigation into the 737 over Portland. We're talking to Captain Sully Sellenberger, Peter Greenberg with a terrible voice, but when we come back, we'll be joined by Jason Liberty, the CEO of the Royal Caribbean Group, on board the Silver Nova. And in our second hour, again, with my terrible voice, we'll be returning with Captain Sellenberger. Stick with us, we'll be back right after this.
0: Your flight might be late, but we're on time. Ion Travel will be right back. Once again, here's Peter Greenberg.
1: And welcome back. Peter Greenberg here with you as Ion Travel continues for this January weekend, 2024. I have to remind myself of that. Of course, you can always reach me. Just email me to peter at petergreenberg.com with your name, phone number, question or problem. We will solve it right here. As you know, we're coming to you live on tape from aboard the new Silver Sea, Silver Nova. Joining me now, the president and CEO of the Royal Caribbean Group, Jason Liberty. Jason, welcome.
3: Well, well, thank you for having me. Great to be here.
1: Well, thank you for having me. This is your ship. (laughs) When we take a look back, uh, uh, let's say three or four years ago, Immediately prior to COVID, then during COVID, what a lot of people forget is that while travel was sort of interrupted in a very big way, the shipyards were still busy. They were still making, you know, building ships of every size and pedigree, including this one.
3: Well, that's exactly right. Um, you know, when we are you know, our, our dreaming of what the future of cruising would, would look and feel like, and of course that's very much here represented in the Silver Nova, um, started about five years ago. So we ordered this ship uh, four and a half, five years ago um, for it to be delivered um, here uh, you know, this year. And so that dreaming took place. We put those ship orders in and those shipbuilders bu- ship continued to build ships through COVID. By the way, I mentioned Royal Caribbean Group. You've got another ship coming out momentarily. Well, yeah, that's right. So we, 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 uh, we, we named Silver Nova today. Um, and in a few weeks, we're going to name Icon of the Seas, uh, which is uh, for the Royal Caribbean International brand. Um, we're very excited to show all of her wonders a slightly larger ship yeah slightly larger it's like how much larger? yeah it's probably in, in terms of like uh size wise it's probably about four and a half times the size of silver nova that's hard, it's almost hard to comprehend uh, it's hard to comprehend but you know for that for that market for the contemporary market multi-generational family um this ship really caters to multi-generations um and so whether you're three years old whether you're 15 years old or whether you're 65 or 70 years old um the ability to have a multi Generational family experience, um, where everybody can go out and enjoy the experiences that they seek, and then come back together as a family unit, uh, will certainly be uh, uh, overly delivered. I think on Icon of the Seas. If you look at the numbers, and you just look at the numbers, they're staggering, right? If you add the passenger load and the number of crew, what 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 number do you come up with? Well, you would if you added those numbers together, you'd be slightly above ten thousand uh, um, people on Icon of the Seas. That's a small city. It's a small city and these are really small cities that have um, incredible entertainment um, activities for everybody to do and when you look at the public space per person, it's actually in that contemporary space at the, at the, at the very high um, end of that and that's what we want to do is we want to make sure that we're able to deliver all these different activities and experiences, making sure that there's enough public space in the environment so that there's no queues that everybody's able to enjoy the experiences in real time.
1: I mean, there's a real science to this now because you've got to study human movement. You've got to study time, speed, um, other obstacles in their way that might be architecturally an impediment. You had to really
3: figure this one out. Yeah. Well, first off, we're we're always grounded in consumer research. We very much understand what the customer of today and the customer of tomorrow uh, is looking for. But the other thing is, is, you know, we've been doing this quite a long time. We've got 50-plus years of experience um, delivering, you know, the best vacations in the world. And we use those experiences um, plus new learnings or new um, um, technologies in the neighbor architectural world to be able to continue to enhance and bring the very best to our guests. But Your
1: ships now are the biggest.
3: Well, our ships have been the biggest, and they will continue to be the biggest here as Icon of the Seas comes on. You know, your predecessor R-
1: Richard Fane and I used to joke. I was the one joking; he was the one who got mad at me. I kept saying, "You know, you're building ships that are so large they got a high crime area on board. I mean, I mean, it's like you, you know, I'm looking for the sheriff, and I'm looking for,
3: but you figured out space. Well, that's exactly right. And and you, you're Richard, of course, an incredible visionary, um, in this space. I, I call him; he's the, he's kind of the goat, um, of the shipbuilding world, um, and that combined with our incredible new building teams have really kind of figured out. Um, how we really tune into um, the experiences and the and the spaces that we need in order to you know to go out and deliver our mission of delivering the best vacations in the world.
1: You know, when you talk about bells and whistles on a ship, I think what you guys actually perfected in doing is making the ship itself a destination.
3: Well, that, well, that's right. So you know, for, you know, for sure, for the number one thing that our guests are interested in is destination. Where is the ship going to go? And we want to make sure that the experience on the ship lives up to and in many cases exceeds the experience that they can have on land. And that's really, as we look about how do we go out and deliver the best vacations in the world, we wanna make sure those activities and experiences are also located on the ship.
1: Well, funny you should mention that because so many people I talked to who've taken your bigger ships, I asked them where they went and all they talked about was the ship, right? So the
3: the destination that was in the brochure almost became incidental to the experience they had on the ship. Well, but the first thing that's, that, that typically um, connects in a consumer's mind is the dreaming. So where am I going to go? They sometimes don't realize that what's going to take them there could be better um, and usually is better than the experience of what they're actually going to do when they get to the destination. Um, And, and of course, if you're our loyal guest, you understand um, the experience that you're going to have on the ship. But the dreaming starts off with where do we want to go? And then, of course, they want to make sure in their flight to quality that they're going on on that experience in these different segments, whether it's with our ultra luxury here today with Silver Nova, or whether that's on the contemporary space with with Icon of the Seas coming out, or whether that's with Celebrity Ascent on the celebrity side on the premium side. You know, when you talk about bells and whistles on a ship, we live in a world of experiential one-upsmanship. So when you're sitting in your
1: conference room and somebody comes up to you and says, hey, Jason, why don't we have a roller coaster? Why don't we have? Why don't
3: we launch missiles? I mean, I mean, is there something you actually turn down? Oh, all the time. I mean, first of all, we 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 first need to understand how would we operationalize it, um, so we, we can think about the dreaming. And sometimes the, that operationalizing can't happen on this ship or this class of ship. We might need advancements in naval architecture, na- advancements in technology, to be able to make sure that we can deliver that experience every single day, every minute of every single day, in a consistent manner. Um, but there's always ideas. Um, what was what was the
1: craziest one you said? Not even close.
3: Um, well, I think I think the one that was out there was was the blimp. Uh, we were thinking a blimp. About, we were thinking about having a blimp um, on on one of the ships, and where you would you know you, you know just like you would you know, um, um, you, know, you get on a water slide, you could get on the blimp and. And, and you were able to, uh, as the ship was moving, be on a blimp another 500, 600 feet um, above the ship. And uh, that was something that we actually tested, um, but we realized we could not consistently operationalize that, especially with winds, and we decided not to do it.
1: So it didn't fly?
3: It did not fly. All right, so the blimp was 86th. Yeah, that was 86. Okay. But, I mean, was there one that somebody said, you can never do this, and you said, no, we're going to make it work, and you made it work? Well, I think what you're going to see here on ICON, which is the Aquadome, um, which is, you know, this the, this amazing aqua theater entertainment space, sitting on 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 uh, at the very top of the ship. Nobody thought that we were actually to be able to build a dome of that size, um, or would we actually be able to have water placement at, at at that high on the ship as the ship was moving. And I think people are going to be absolutely wowed. Uh, when they see that we were able to to to, uh, to transform that space and make that space something that nobody has ever seen before.
1: Of course, when you talk about height, I'm reminded of Jeff Bezos' attempt to build his own yacht. They forgot when they built the yacht that it couldn't
3: fit under the bridge, right? So you have to take that into consideration too. The Verizon and Arrows Bridge is not going to move for you. Well, well, that's exactly right. I mean, first off, I mean, as we're designing ships, as we're as we're even in the dreaming state, you know, we have the best experts in the world. Whether it's from from ports to F and B, um, whether it's to the naval architectural side, so we're thinking all the way through where are these ships going to go and what are the capabilities as well as the dimensions that are needed, enable to be able to support that ship um, in its operation. But you have to think about you have to think about all those elements. Uh, before you make a multi-billion-dollar decision.
1: Of course, for the old Panama Canal, the Icon of Seas couldn't make it through. How about the new Panama Canal?
3: Um, I, I I I still think even in the new Panama Canal, there's there's limitations. Um, so our expectation is not to take Icon, um, you know, through you know through that space. Um, but we have plenty of ships that can uh, take people on their journey through the Panama Canal.
1: Is there a place that you know? When you take a look at going back to the days of the Love Boat, right? There were maybe seven ports a call, right? There was Nassau. Maybe the Mexican Riviera
3: had Alaska, right? Now you're over 1,200. Well, that's well, that's right. So you know, over time, you know, cruising as an experience, as as a, as taking you to all these incredible destinations around the world. Also enabled a lot of countries and destinations to build the proper ports to be able to support the cruise industry, as well as to build out the experiences to share their culture, um, their culinary experience, etc. On land, um, which is which is what really our, our customers go out and seek. Um, so you're right. So we went from a few a handful of ports to now we go to over a thousand different destinations, and and uh, you know pretty much whatever a customer dreams of doing, we're able to deliver them. On one of our three brands.
1: Of course, you also have the ability to move your assets. You know that hotels can't do that. When you have a situation in the Suez Canal, or you have a situation in the Middle East, or 9/11, you could reposition your ships.
3: Hotels can't do that. Well, definitely one of the advantages of the cruise industry is is our, our assets do float, so they do move, um, and and of course, you know we're a global business. We source globally. We talked about the 1,200 destinations we go to. So our ability, our nimbleness is exceptionally high um, for for business in the travel space. When we come back, I want to talk
1: to you about some of the other challenges you're facing, not just you, but as an industry. We we talk about over-tourism. We talk about ports that are suddenly saying, please don't park your ships here, or please limit the number of ships that can be in the port at any one time. And that's a continuing challenge when you have that many ships and that much demand. You know, I take a look at what happened on land this past summer in Greece, there are 30,000 people a day climbing up to the Acropolis in 100 degree weather, right? To talk about the medevac calls. So the Greece's answer to that was, well, we'll make it 20,000 a day. That's not the answer. So when we come back, let's talk about how you reposition things to accommodate for that. We're talking to Jason Liberty, the CEO and president of the Royal Caribbean Group on board the Silver Nova right here in Fort Lauderdale as it sails out a little bit later today. Back with more of Ion Travel right after this.
0: Have a travel question or problem? Just email Peter at peter at petergreenberg.com and we'll solve it on the air. Need more information on what you've heard? Have a travel question or comment? Just log on to com Now Here's Peter.
1: And we're back on board the Silver Nova as Ion Travel continues. Peter Greenberg here with you. You can always email me, Peter at PeterGreenberg.com, with your name, phone number, question or problem. We will solve it right here on the air. We're talking to Jason Liberty, the CEO and president of the Royal Caribbean Group. Jason, when we see what's happening in ports like Amsterdam
3: or Barcelona or Bermuda or even in Venice,
1: right, you have to adapt to that as well.
3: Oh, absolutely. And, of course, a lot of the volumes that you see at a lot of these destinations is not really cruise. It's Airbnb. It's VBROs. There's a lot of additional... um, Demand activities that are that are drawing people into those city centers, but we do have to react. I mean, one of those ways is we're continuing to diversify the destinations that we go to. We talked a little bit earlier that you know, this industry you know started off going to a handful of ports, and now we go to over 1,200 different ports around the world. So you can pivot. You can pivot. Flexibility of our model allows us to pivot. Um, we're also investing more in destinations like what we have here in the Bahamas at perfect the perfect day um, at Coco Cay, where you know instead of going to the same city centers, we're all we're also able to get those guests to go to different locations, and that's what we have to do. We have to continue to and we need to continue to to diversify the places that we go to take off some of that pressure um, in some of those city centers. And of course, that pressure is still
1: there. In Venice, if the bridge of size becomes the bridge of thighs, you've got a problem, right? And in Santorini, I was cruising last summer. I wouldn't get off the ship because if you walked into Santorini, you were elbow to elbow, you couldn't move.
3: Yeah, That wasn't because of the cruise lines. That was because everybody else who was there. Well, that's right. And that's why I think it's, it's, a, it's a broader tourism challenge um, for everybody. And I think that comes from us being able to identify and continue to, to diversify, build ports in other locations around the world, build more destinations. And also even in those city centers, how do we expand? And the overall destination offering so that they're not going to the same locations that everybody else is going to. And if you take a look at the ports of call that Silversea goes to, you're going to
1: ports of call that most people can't even find on a map or never thought about. It's not on everybody's bucket list, but my bucket list is all the places I haven't been to. So it's perfect for me. I mean, how many people sail to Bangladesh? Silversea does. And before the whole situation happened in the Ukraine, you had the Russian Far East, right? You also have the Kimberleys in, in in northwest Australia, and for those people who've never been there, that's got to be on everybody's bucket list.
3: Yeah, I, well, I couldn't agree more. I mean, you know, the Silver Sea brand is really about destination immersion, being delivered in an ultra-luxury way, and because the ships are smaller, they're able to go to more unique destinations around the world, and and we help our guests dream about where they can go, and and so that it's also when they can go. So, are you are you adjusting your schedule
1: so that you're not in the port with seven other ships at the same time?
3: Well, that's that's absolutely right, but also it's it's not just about showing up at the same port when other ships are, Silver Sea is able to go to the destinations that might be a port or two away that are much smaller ports those that the smaller ship or the the lower volume of of guests are able to take you to. And what they're able to do is go into those destinations and connect the destination to the ship. So the immersion activity not only takes place on going through the spice markets of a destination, but bringing those spice markets onto the ship for your culinary experience. And that is an example of some of the uniqueness of Silver Sea.
1: You know, the traditional cruise is you get in there at seven in the morning, you grab a t-shirt and one pina colada and you're out at four in the afternoon. But these ships at Silver, and, and on, on a number of cruise lines now are doing overnights.
3: Yeah, well, I, I think that the, it starts off with the, the, the consumer has has evolved over time, right? It used to be the city tour, as you said, the T-shirt, the pina colada. And today, really what they- Are there were, pictures of you with a pina colada and a T-shirt? Yeah, there is. There is. Just double checking. For, for sure there is. I'll, I'll have to share them at some point in my life. No, you won't. <laughs> I know, I know. But 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 really what's happened is is the guest is really looking for a story to walk away with. They want experiences. They want to gather experiences. They want to share experiences. They want to share those experiences in social media, and so they want to create FOMO um, for their friends and family. They want bragging rights. They want bragging rights, and and so you know that that's why whether the experience on the ships or the experiences on land have really evolved to try to get to a place where. You you're you're hitting the sites that you want to, but you're you're walking away with the stories um, that are meaningful to you.
1: So you're going from necessarily a tour guide approach to a storytelling approach.
3: That's exactly right.
1: That's a that's a great way of putting it. And now you have 1,200 stories to tell with 1,200 ports.
3: Yeah, and 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 that's that's where the you know, it's not just about the number; it's also the quality of the experience in themselves. And the Silver Sea team and our other brands just do an exceptional job making sure that the destination experience really matches the marketing of of, of what we talk about and what we show in the in the offering. And that requires a tremendous amount of work um, to be able to do that and do that really well. And And then there's the engineering aspect of it,
1: right? You're cutting edge. You have to be sustainable, right? New fuel sources. New,
3: new basically propulsion units. That's what this ship is. Yeah. So, you know, our journey is very clear, right? Our mission is very clear to get to a net zero position by 2050. In order to do that, you just don't wake up one day and, and wish for that to happen. You have to continue to advance the technologies. And for us, and this is a g- great example here on Silver Nova, um, whether it's with LNG or whether it's preparing itself for fuel cells, et cetera, is being in a place to advance the technology and be ready to take on alternative fuels as they, as they avail themselves to us. But
1: this is a ship that's particularly designed to be able to accept that.
3: Well, that's right, and 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 our, our goal here is, is is to be able is to put engines and technology and fuel tanks etc. You know to be in a position um, with with small modifications to be able to take on alternative energy and also to advance the technology that lessens the consumption of different fuels um, um, so that we can continue to reduce our our, uh, our footprint. Now you talk about dreamers and you talk about bucket lists. Where's yours? Well, I just fulfilled uh, one of my bucket list items, which was going to Iceland. Um, so so next on my list is is to go to Antarctica. Um, and fortunately, Silver Sea. Uh, just- by coincidence you have ships that go there just by coincidence uh, and that's the great part about my job or being in this business especially owning these three incredible brands if I dream about it it's most likely that one of our brands will be able to take me there or your kids will never talk to you again so that's, well, well, that's right that's, well I think that's I think that's exactly I got to keep creating experiences for them and make sure you know that uh, that they're dreaming about what they want to do in life yeah, there's just one
1: thing I have to share with you when you get down there as cute as the penguins look they stink
3: okay well, that's good to know I'll, I'll preparing you I'll, I'll 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 be sure to train my uh my, uh, my sense is uh, to, uh, you know, to not uh, take that on too hard. The bottom line is, you have that choice. Well, that's exactly right. And I think that's, you know when we think about modern cruising, when we think about what we wake up and try to do every day, which is to go out and deliver those best vacation experiences, we have to be tuned in to what those experiences are, and then we need to figure out how we operationalize that and deliver it so that our guests walk away with the memories that uh, they were hoping to.
1: Jason Liberty, the CEO and President of the Royal Caribbean Group. Thanks for joining us. We'll be back with more from the Silver Nova right after this.
0: Please remain seated with your seatbelt fastened. Ion Travel will be right back. Now, back to Eye on Travel.
1: Peter Greenberg back with you as Eye on Travel continues on board the brand new Silver Sea, Silver Nova, sailing between Fort Lauderdale and Cozumel in Mexico. Of course, you can always reach me. You know the drill. Just email me to Peter at PeterGreenberg.com with your name, phone number, question or problem. We will solve it right here on the air throughout the show. Uh, I'm very pleased to welcome my next guest. I never see him where he lives. (laughs) He never sees me where I live. And of course, true to form, we're now seeing each other in the middle of the ocean. He's the longtime NBC correspondent. Welcome back, Mr. Kerry Sanders. How are you? Well, thank you so much, Peter. It's a pleasure to join you. Uh, You know, when it comes to travel, I can say there are a few people who rival me in terms of uh, miles flown and flights taken. Uh, You worked for NBC for how many years?
4: Uh, 32 years for NBC, uh, 40 years as a journalist uh, doing television, a little bit of newspaper and radio. But for NBC, I know they calculated this. How many miles did you fly?
1: How many (laughs) flights? To the moon and back? Well, many times over. Yeah. Yeah. And, And the point is, I mean, anytime there was something breaking in the world,
4: there you were. And guess what? Everywhere I went, I was able to keep those miles. So I can use those frequent flyer miles. Well good luck trying.
1: <laughs> well that's true. That's another story. We could we can spend hours on redemption. Uh, By the way, uh, the airlines get no redemption for me because they make redemption so hard.
4: You want me to give you a a quick story about redemption? Yeah. I called up an airline with my many points. Which airline? We name names here. Delta Airlines. Thank you. And I said, uh, I'd like to take a trip in March, uh, March 13th. And I gave them the routing and everything else. And they got back to me. I did this on the phone. Yeah. And they said, I'm sorry. We don't have any seats available with the number of points that you want to use for this you know, you know, like, but you can do like double points. And I'm like, oh, I'm sorry. I didn't mean this March. I meant next March, more than a year from now. Oh, let me take a look. No, sorry. There's no seats available (laughs) at those number of points either. So in other words, I don't always believe that they exist. No, you're dealing
1: with Venezuelan currency. Mm. I'm telling you, they've, they've made it difficult to earn and harder to redeem. And you know this has been one of my biggest pet peeves. It's, and you mentioned Delta when they tried to redo their frequent flyer program about four months ago, it started a revolution because it basically said from now on, it doesn't matter how many miles you fly or how many flights you take, it's just about how much money you spend. And I was
4: not a I, w- I was not a super high mileage traveler sure. on Delta. I have other airlines that I travel far more on than right. Delta.
1: Well, either way, I think you might have a similar experience with the other airlines these days because it's the same MO. Yeah. But moving towards where we are right now,
4: frequent sea miles. Yes. Uh brand new ship. Amazing. I mean, uh I I will tell you one of the things. I've only been on I did a lot of reporting on cruise ships, and so I went on them as a reporter, but as a guest, uh, it's kind of a different experience. When I'm looking yeah. at, what I'm seeing, uh you tell me if I've got this right. Often when I would be on a ship doing a story, which are very large vessels, uh, I know even numbers are to port, odd numbers are to starboard, and if you're going to your cabin, you need to make sure you're getting on the right side to get to your cabin. But here, there is no wrong... Um, there's you know no wrong hallway to get to your cabin because... There's only one hall hallway. Am I right about this? Well,
1: here's the deal: there are no inside cabins, so everybody has a balcony. Everybody has a window. Everybody... And so it's one hallway down
4: the center of the ship,
1: more or less. Yeah, it's a a different design.
4: Can I just tell you that I would get lost very often on other vessels when I was doing it? And it becomes irritating that you've walked on, got on an elevator, you're not sure, or taken the stairs, and you're not sure whether you're on the right side until you get down to the deck level, and you're walking, and then you see the numbers, and you go, wait a second, I'm in an even, and this is odd. I've got to go back all the way around to figure out how to get to the other side of the vessel. I'll give
1: you one. Do you know the derivation of the word posh? No. No. It came from the royals. My producer, Amanda Morris, would love hearing this since she's a complete royal fanatic. Posh means port out starboard home. Oh. Because you always wanted to be on the side of the sun. Very nice. I like that. So if you're being very posh,
4: that's how you're traveling. Wow.
1: See, aren't you glad I shared that with you?
4: I feel educated, and uh, (laughs) you know what? This is the great thing. You're always learning. Always learning. The thing
1: about this ship, um, which I find a testimonial to naval architecture, is it carries about 700 passengers, a little bit more than 700, but it's, it's big enough so that you don't feel crowded. You don't feel that you're standing in line for
4: anything. I, I would agree with that. And uh, actually, I didn't know the number was 700. So yeah. uh, that seems like a lot, but then it's not because... I just came from the upper deck where I was, you know, sitting out reading with the uh, cool breezes off the uh, water. Here, it's a okay, beautiful now, day.
1: Carrie Sanders is now starting to sound like a brochure. No, but it's a beautiful day.
4: It really is. We're just past Cuba, I think. Yeah, we did. Yeah, absolutely. You know, Pinar del Rio. So I've been to Cuba on many assignments. Uh, again, working, and this is a little fun, relaxing.
1: Carrie Sanders, stick with us. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, more. From the Silver Nova, Peter Greenberg, Carrie Sanders, returning with Ion Travel right after this.
0: Your flight might be late, but we're on time. Ion Travel will be right back. Been listening to Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg. Visit our website at www.petergreenberg.com for more information and sign up for our newsletter. Ion Travel is a CBS Audio Network production.
1: And we're back, moving along the Straits. Peter Greenberg here with Carrie Sanders on board the brand new Silver Sea Silver Nova. Of course, you can always reach out to me, you know the deal. Just email me to peter at petergreenberg.com and we'll take it from there. Carrie, when you were reporting on cruise ships, you were reporting on, you know, serious issues. We're talking the norovirus, of course, COVID, cruise ship safety.
4: Uh, liability issues, environmental issues. Yeah, I mean, the industry's come a long way from when they used to just throw stuff overboard.
1: Well, I remember there was a time I was on a cruise ship in 1987, and one of the crew members said to me, and I was, and it was formal night. In those days, everybody had to dress one night formal, and I'm in. I mean, I'm in the stupid tuxedo, and one of the crew members said to me, "Well, tonight, don't go out on deck." what do you mean because because that's when they were burning all the garbage and i didn't understand what he meant course i'm gonna go out on deck i came back my shirt was covered with soot right because they were burning everything right there's a zero tolerance policy thankfully now a zero tolerance policy where nothing goes over the side nothing is burned uh nothing is is uh is is, is everything is kept on board it's compacted it's ground and then taken off at a, at a port where it can be properly disposed
4: well some of the stories i did in the uh going back probably 20 25, almost 30 years, was how even the engine rooms would just push oil overboard. It would be in the cleaning of the engine and the washing out of the bilge and everything else, they did not have separators, and they just pushed it out. And I know that there was a combination of federal regulations, Oh yeah. but also just an industry that said, this is not a good look. We don't need to do this. And so a lot of that changed internally, and a as lot of well changed, as and a lot just
1: because it, pictures, people see it. Well, a lot of it changed externally about pictures, the Coast Guard out of North Carolina, working with the EPA and everybody else and the United States Justice Department would launch C one thirty planes, right, that were that were dragging a drone right? And if they saw any, and they had infrared cameras. So if they saw an oil slick coming from a cruise ship, a freighter, a tanker, they would take a picture of it. Then they drop down at water level, right above the water. The drone would scoop up a water sample, right? It's DNA time. They would then analyze that sample. And when that ship came to the harbor, they'd board the ship and match it. If they matched it,
4: the fines were out of control. And today, I mean, as I look off the stern here, but today I think the industry has really gotten the message. It's, it's changed. Oh, they have. Different fuel
1: systems, different engines, they're not burning, and, and not only different fuel systems, different fuel.
4: You know, they're not using the old heavy crude bunker. It's, it's a whole different kind of earth. I'm taken by the fact that I think we're not just talking about the cruise industry. We're talking about society in general and whether you are in the United States or whether you are in Rwanda or wherever, it feels like and maybe this is a generational thing, people are getting the idea that when they say green, they really do believe in the need for that sustainability to recognize that we are doing damage if we don't work for the long term, rather than just the short term. The other green, which is making a buck,
1: right? Well, you know, I I used to laugh all the time when I'd come into my hotel room and there'd be a little sign on my bed saying, "Please help us save the environment by not washing your towels." And I used to laugh not because of the intent of the message but because the sign was in plastic, right? And, 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 <laughs> and I said, come on. Well, then you know what? One day somebody said to me at one of the hotels, come downstairs, we want to show you something. And they took me into their laundry. I'd never seen washing machines that big in my life. I mean, humongous, gargantuan. And then I began to connect the dots when I saw how much phosphate had to be used in those machines to wash that towel. And 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 then I got the
4: message. And we've done stories, and this has not actually fully changed yet, but included in the uh, material or the, uh, the detergent that's used to clean are tiny little bits of plastic. And these micro pieces of plastic do wind up in our world's oceans and i've done stories with uh, scientists who are concerned that those microplastics, which then get attached to seaweed or wind up they're in almost every fish in the ocean and so we eat that fish now there's no health studies that say eating a fish that has microplastic in it is going to cause us any health concerns but you got to wonder you know if we are at home doing our laundry or wherever, and our outflow is winding up in the world's waterways, what are we doing? Exactly. And it's in our toothpaste, it's in everything. You'd be surprised. Thank you for sharing. Yeah. I can't wait to go brush my teeth. <laughs> What's the biggest surprise to you about this ship? Um, okay, so I think the seas are relatively calm but I'm not sure I would know if you just stood me and closed my eyes that we are actually on the water. I didn't feel a vibration. I kind of expected to feel that, and I haven't felt the, the sway of a boat. Now, you tell me, is that because we're in incredibly calm seas or is that because things are different? Certainly, I've been on naval ships, and trust me when I tell you, when I'm on ruling. aircraft carriers or, or battleships or whatever, I know that, I am, I know that I'm at sea.
1: What you're dealing with here is state-of-the-art stabilizers. Uh, You're also able to do something called dynamic positioning. So if the the ship was literally not moving,
4: you might not even feel it either
1: simply because they're able to maintain their position without even dropping an
4: anchor. But what I don't need to do, as often happens, uh, not that I'm somebody who gets seasick, but sometimes you feel like you need to see the horizon to understand where you are. And I haven't felt the need for that. Well, the good news is you actually have because you've got
1: floor-to-ceiling windows in every cabin. So it's, <laughs> it's more glass than you can imagine, and you're seeing everything. Right. Kerry Sanders, thank you for joining us, and thank you for seeing everything. Absolutely. Thank and, you. And congratulations on all those miles of all those years at NBC that you'll be <laughs> unable to redeem. <laughs> Thanks, Kerry. That music means we're out of time for this hour, but stick around, because when we come back, we're continuing our conversation with Captain Sullenberger. Back with more from the Silver Nova right after this.
0: You've been listening to Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg. Visit our website at www.petergreenberg.com for more information and sign up for our newsletter. Ion Travel is a CBS Audio Network production. With reporting from around the world, it's time for Eye on Travel with America's number one frontline travel news journalist, Peter Greenberg. And now, the man who travels over 400,000 miles each year, Peter Greenberg.
1: Welcome back to Ion Travel. Peter Pienberg here with a hoarse voice in our second hour. If you're just joining us, most of the show is coming from the Silver Nova, the brand new Silver Sea ship sailing between Fort Lauderdale and Cozumel, Mexico. But we're pleased to be joined in our second hour by our guest from the first hour, Captain Sully Sullenberger. As we celebrate, if you can, certainly acknowledge the 15th anniversary of U.S. flight, U.S. Air Flight 1549, otherwise known as the Miracle on the Hudson. Captain, welcome back.
2: Thank you, Peter.
1: So, you know, when we talked about the seven thirty seven Max and we talk about the the two crashes in Ethiopia and one in Indonesia, what came into, into focus is something that I think you and I have known about for quite some time, but it became on it became very quickly on Congress's radar that manufacturers like Boeing had been allowed to certify their own planes as safe for decades. And uh, so, and thankfully, that process is now being uh, being mitigated.
2: Yeah, and, and that's as it should be. Um, the FAA has an obligation to ensure that Boeing and everyone else in the industry adheres to the standards and practices and the requirements of the federal aviation regulations. And that's something that, that we owe everyone who flies.
1: And of course, when we talk about the continuing investigation Of the current 737 MAX 9, the investigation now is taking a turn, as I thought it would, going back to the assembly line at Boeing and who is inspecting the planes. Uh, How thorough the inspection was, not just of Boeing, but of their subcontractors. And as they're finding more cases of either missing or loose bolts, it's entirely possible that the FAA Emergency Airworthiness Directive, which effectively grounded 171 planes, may continue.
2: And it's also important to note that there have been a number of whistleblower reports uh, about uh, issues with the manufacture of these parts, Uh, not just at Boeing, but at their many uh, outsourced suppliers that are very concerning about certifications of parts meeting specifications that might have been falsified, for example. So it's important that the investigations continue in every area, I I think the the F.A. will have to go back to the drawing board, literally. When these parts were first designed, whether it was on graph paper or on a computer-aided design screen, uh, and the specifications were set, did they meet F.A. standards? And if they did and they still failed, were the F.A. standards sufficient?
1: Exactly. And, of course... It's the chain of custody and staffing issues. You know, one of the reasons why we had something called an FAA-designated inspector but paid by the manufacturer was that the FAA didn't have the staff or the budget to perform those inspections. Now that they're required to do it, they're still saddled with budgetary and staffing problems, right?
2: Yes, and also it's important that the FAA employees who are now going to be doing the inspections have the technological expertise, knowledge, and experience To be able to effectively do that.
1: I'm going to give you a a situation which you may be aware of, and that is when it comes to maintenance. So many airlines are um, outsourcing their maintenance to foreign maintenance operations, and there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, I'm sure they do a great job, but there's the question of oversight again. And under current regulations, if an FAA inspector wants to go inspect that work, they have to get permission. And they don't always get permission because of budget. But assuming they do get permission, and here's where it gets me crazy, Captain, they have to then let that operation know with a seven-day notice that they're coming. That's like asking the health department to give the restaurant a seven-day notice that they're going to inspect the kitchen. That doesn't seem to be a proper way to go.
2: Right. It's crazy. and It must be changed.
1: I know. So let's talk about uh, the A350 incident in Japan. Uh, I was amazed as I'm sure you were in a very pleasant way that everybody was able to get out of that plane with literally half the exits blocked.
2: It's a very uh, uh, wonderful outcome and one that might not have been expected given the circumstances. I think it's a testament to the performance of the flight crew and of the passengers on that flight, you know, my message is for everyone who flies to pay attention to the flight attendant safety demonstration even if you've seen it before or even if you heard it many times to know where the exits are how they operate and when an event does occur to comply with the flight attendant directions and that's what in this case I think really helped to save a lot of lives it seems to have been a very well trained crew that had the discipline in a, a very sudden uh, extreme emergency of a lifetime to be able to follow the procedures, to, uh, to, to shout their commands to the passengers through uh, megaphones when the PA didn't work and the, the passengers complied. They listened. They stayed in their seats with their seatbelt fastened until they were ordered to evacuate. And apparently it, it went, you know, really pretty well. It took a while. It took a lot longer than the, the certification standards uh, require airlines to be able to demonstrate um, evacuations in but fortunately because the the fire did not reach the cabin until the evacuation was complete it was successful it, we were fortunate because of the circumstances of this crash of course next time the circumstances might be worse
1: exactly and you know every airline is required to comply with a rule that says they can evacuate a fully loaded plane with half the exits blocked in the dark in less than 90 seconds And I've always argued that the airlines seem to pass these tests all the time because I think they hire the cast of Cirque du Soleil. Um, Is that 90-second rule actually possible?
2: I think in the real world it's not. Uh, And I I think that the the certification tests need to be completely revamped and in every way take into account real-world conditions. They they can't all be young, fit, able-bodied people, um, and they can't. Be you know, allowed to uh, to practice many times before the demonstration. Actually, is is for the record. Um, I think they need to take a lot more uh, regular people of, of varied ages and sizes and abilities, um, and then uh, if there's a way to do it safely without them incurring their own injuries, to see how long it really takes in more of a real world situation. And if that can't not be done uh, completely. Uh, physically in real life, then they need to do a lot better at the simulations and, and, and set conditions for the simulations that would absolutely reflect the reality of everyday. you know, with the person, people trying to take personal belongings with them as always happens in this country. So I think that's one of the things that did not happen as far as I could tell, at least not very much with the Japan airlines evacuation. And I think that may be due to cultural differences. Um, It's, um, I think we have to acknowledge that people in the West, and particularly the United States, might not have been uh, as compliant with directions and might not have had as much um, polite or collaborative or cooperative behavior.
1: Let me put it that way. I agree. Captain Sullenberger, thank you so much for joining us on this 15th anniversary of U.S. Airways Flight 1549. I should mention that plane can be seen at what used to be called the Carolina's Aviation Museum, but is now the Sullenberger Aviation Museum in Charlotte, North Carolina. We'll be back on board the Silver Nova with hopefully a better voice right after this.
0: Your flight might be late, but we're on time. Ion on Travel will be right back. Once again, here's Peter Greenberg.
1: Peter Greenberg back with you. More on Ion Travel as we continue on board the brand new Silver Sea Silver Nova, sailing from Fort Lauderdale to Cozumel, Mexico, and then points beyond. Of course, you can always reach me. You know the drill. Email me to peter at petergreenberg.com with your name, phone number, question, or problem. We will solve it right here on the air. I'm pleased to welcome to the show, by the way, I have to say thank you for welcoming me because this is her ship. She's the president of Silver Sea Cruises. Barbara Muckerman.
5: Peter, thank you for having me.
1: So this is the 12th ship in the fleet. Uh, The line is now 30 years old. This is the biggest ship in the fleet, the first of its class. What's different about this ship? Because And the reason why I'm asking that is during the pandemic, you know, a lot of people weren't traveling, but the shipyards were busy. Uh, They were turning out ships of every size and pedigree, including this one. This one took five years, right? People have to realize that it just didn't happen overnight. But what did you build into this ship going into it, knowing that it was going to be
5: different and cutting edge? So first of all, I would say Silver sea is 30 years young. So as the brand leader in its category, we keep innovating. And Nova is really part of that brand vision that brings off continuous innovation to improve the guest experience even more. So the most important change strategically for Silver sea has been that when we were a very small company with just four ships, our ships needed to go everywhere in the world to be able to offer these amazing destinations. But now with 12 ships, we can have the absolute best destination for each each single ship and matching them together. So for example, if you're looking at our latest ship, Silver Origin is built especially for the Galapagos. Silver Endeavour is the perfect polar ship and Silver Nova is the most incredible ship for, let's say, more traditional cruising, Caribbean, North Europe, Alaska, Mediterranean, because you have this amazing light coming in. The ship has over 4,000 square meter of uh, footage of glass.
1: So the light is everything. Yes. But in terms of what it's capable of doing, right, uh, you know, your ships have always prided themselves and the line has prided itself as to be able to go to not just the the traditional ports, right? You are going, at one point, you are going to the Russian Far East, the Kimberley's in Northwest Australia, uh, Mm -hmm. Bangladesh. I mean, unbelievable places.
5: Yes, Silver Nova is the most sustainable of the, of the ship of the fleet. So, as such, because of all of the different fuels that she can use, she really can reach every corner of the world, and also she has an amazing new tendering system for which she can be drop anchor in these super small ports. We're in Key West today, and it is incredibly beautiful because we are the only ship here. It's very, very quiet, and she will continue to reach the most remote corners in the world, like the rest of our fleet.
1: And you've got all the latest gadgets on board.
5: Yes, lots of gadgets. Uh, so the ship not only has the most incredible sustainable package, but she has nine restaurants, including the Sea and Land Taste Experience, which was really brought to a complete new level. So as you like, no, Silver Sea likes to use food really as the lens of culture to understand better the destinations we visit. On this ship, you have Salt Kitchen, which is a restaurant that changes menu daily, Salt Bar a- changes menu daily
1: based on where you
5: are. Yes. So tonight, key lime pie, for sure. And then, of course, there is the most beautiful test kitchen in the whole world, which is this, the Salt Lab, which is this incredible space open to the ocean where you can teach and learn how to play with the food. But also at night, you can have an incredible experience with, with Chef's Table.
1: In the cruise industry as a whole, uh, you've seen dramatic growth in spite of COVID, you know, everybody talks about revenge travel, but when the cruise ships came back, remember we remember the you know Centers for Disease Control and the moratorium. It all came to a halt. It seems like a hundred years ago, but it
5: wasn't that long ago, and now everybody's back. I mean are you seeing those numbers go way up? So demand for for cruising is still very very strong in general for l- the luxury travel I would say keeps being very strong. Silver Sea took five ships in a little over 2 years and we are sailing pretty full. So the the 2024 looks really good.
1: In terms of service, I mean let's let's be honest about the experience on this ship. It's not just a cabin, it's a butler it's not just a cabin. It's a suite. It's, right. Are there any inside cabins on this ship?
5: Absolutely not. Every single suite on this ship has a balcony.
1: Not to mention floor-to-ceiling windows, too. I mean, it's, it's crazy. Of course.
5: There has never been a ship that has more glass than Silver Nova.
1: <laughs> so you have to dock it very carefully.
5: Yeah, <laughs> and of course. And look at the elevators. This is the only ship that has all elevators glass-facing towards the water.
1: It's nice.
5: Yes, it's very nice. I
1: have to make an admission. Going up and down the elevator today, I forgot to get off.
5: (laughs) Happened to me as well.
1: I'm sure. I was like, this is cool. And I went, wait a minute, where am I? I'm in an elevator. (laughs) I'm not making that up. What's your biggest challenge?
5: I would say the biggest challenge next year is going to make sure that uh, Americans remain focused on traveling and don't get distracted with everything else that will, will go on.
1: Because remember, in an election year... People don't tend to travel as much, especially in this election year, whether you're red or blue, yeah. it's crazy. Uh, and people tend to stay home a lot.
5: Yeah, I think this, this will be a challenge potentially for the industry. The great thing is that many people will just want to go away, and we have some of the best destinations in the world to offer to them. <laughs> There's
1: marketing for you. Forget the election. Run! Yes. Uh, but then, of course, you have the other events around the world that have an impact. Gaza, the West Bank, what's going on in the Middle East right now, the Suez Canal, that's that's basically closing off a lot.
5: Yes, and actually one thing that uh, we are very worried about as a brand is that the world became smaller. I mean, we're both old enough to remember when the Mediterranean was a really large optionality of destinations with North Africa, Silver Sea used to travel to Libya. There were so many more destinations open. Then because of the horrible conflict in Ukraine, of course, the whole of Russia got closed. The Black Sea got closed, you know, St. Petersburg got closed, and of course, of course, Russian Far East that you were saying. So we started shrinking from the Med, and now we're shrinking with Russia. And of course, with the horrible Israeli conflict, uh, it's shrinking even more, losing the whole of the Middle East.
1: And and by the way, it's not just Israel, it's, it's the Med. Yes. Right? The Eastern Med.
5: Yeah, the good thing is that the Med is still considered secure, Northern Med, by, by the guests. We don't see impacts in demand for cruising in Spain, cruising in Italy, cruising in Greece. That keeps going really, really well. But right now, I wouldn't necessarily increase my deployment in the Middle East.
1: But the nice thing about having a cruise line is you can move your assets.
5: Yes, that's a huge advantage compared to our partner hotels.
1: Right, you can literally reposition.
5: Yes, which we are. I mean, we've changed significantly our 2024 itineraries to make sure to go as quickly as possible through the Middle East with just when the ships need to reposition.
1: And that's it. Yes. Is there one destination that's happening now in terms of passenger demand that's surprising you?
5: We've seen a very strong Alaska. Uh, so that's also partially maybe for a more domestic focus with everything that's happening around the world. Mediterranean keeps being incredibly strong. Typically, January, February, you see everybody thinking about their summer vacation, and so they will start uh, booking MED, and MED is going really strong, as is North Europe. And
1: we saw so many new, new cruise lines come out, right? At at the very moment where other cruise lines were retiring their ships early, taking them to the scrappers, I remember those terrible videos that I was watching back in 2020 and 2021 of of these ships being grounded in Turkey and these ships being grounded in in other parts of the world just to be scrapped uh, way before their uh, useful life was supposed to be ended, right? But a ship like this, the Silver Nova, this can sail for 20 or 30 years.
5: Oh yeah, and probably even more. I mean, she is uh, built with the uh, cutting-edge technology, and honestly, we—I believe that a ship like this one will really, really run over 25 years, and probably even reach 30, 35.
1: Wow. Now, most cruise lines don't keep those ships 30, 35 years.
5: Well, it always depends, you know, how they they look. I mean, we are now 30 years, the Silver Cloud will this year also celebrate 30 years. And she's doing amazingly well, offering an incredible experience in Antarctica.
1: (laughs) By the way, Antarctica has exploded. Yes. everybody. it's, It's talk about bucket list on speed. Everybody wants to go.
5: Yes, but not everybody has uh, the time to do the Drake. So we are seeing a huge demand peak uh, in our fly and cruise program, in which yeah, we chartered an air bridge. Exactly, and we've done it together. You know, in which you fly with a private charter plane straight to Antarctica, which really allows you to avoid the Drake Passage.
1: Right, you're landing at King George Island.
5: Yes, which is incredible.
1: Amazing, Barbara Muckerman, the president of Silver Sea. Thank you for having us on. Congratulations on the new ship.
5: Thank you, Peter, for having me.
1: Barbara, thank you so much. That's Barbara Muckerman, the president of Silver Sea Cruises. You know, Barbara was talking about that air bridge to King George Island. I've done it. I have to tell you, it makes a huge difference when you don't have to survive the Drake Shakes, the Drake Passage between South America and Antarctica. But, of course, one thing that happens when you get down there, if you're lucky, you become part of the SALT program. It stands for Sea and Land Taste an amazingly innovative food program, not just on the ship, but also on the shore. So coming up, we'll be joined by Adam Sachs, who came up with this idea, and it's an amazing opportunity to immerse yourself in the culture through the food. Back right after this.
0: Have a travel question or problem? Just email Peter at peter at petergreenberg.com, and we'll solve it on the air. more information on what you've heard, have a travel question or comment, just log on to petergreenberg.com. Now, here's Peter.
1: And welcome back to Ion Travel. Peter Greenberg here with you on board the brand new Silver Sea Silver Nova as we're sailing between Fort Lauderdale and Cozumel in Mexico. Of course, you can always reach me. You know the drill. You just email me to peter at petergreenberg.com with your name, phone number, question or problem. We will solve it right here on the air. Earlier, we were speaking to Barbara Muckerman, the president of Silver Sea, talking about, among other things, how this ship differs in terms of its approach to food, gastronomy, culinary experience. And joining me now, someone I've had a, ch- a chance to travel with around the world, So I can speak from personal experience. Adam Sachs, the director of SALT, that stands for the Sea and Land Taste Project right here on Silver Sea. Nice to see you again, sir.
6: Good to see you, Peter. Glad to be traveling with you again.
1: But for those people who don't know what SALT is, you know, for purposes of background, my experience on most cruise ships is you go there and you're served dinner (laughs) uh, or lunch or breakfast. We
6: do that here, too.
1: I I know that. We're going to get to that. Uh, And there's a set menu and that's what you do. That's not what SALT is.
6: No, so well, salt is definitely about serving you delicious things. I got
1: that part. But yeah.
6: it's but it's about changing those things based on where we are in the world. It's about adapting to where we're going and really connecting the guest to what's happening outside the window. I'm very distracted right now because I'm looking outside the window. And it's beautiful. There's a beautiful sunset. But you know we're going places, and there's I think there's some there's a there's a real comfort in having you know a familiar dish. If you you ha- you've got your favorite table, you've got your you know favorite uh, steak, uh, beef Wellington, and a bottle of Bordeaux. But then You know, for a different kind of diner or a different sort of night, you want to go somewhere and you want to eat the food and taste the. Drinks of the places you're visiting,
1: and of course, a cruise ship gives you that opportunity because you are in a different place just about every night. Exactly,
6: you're really yeah. You're following a route. You're following a route that also has potentially, probably, some influence in in the cuisine. I mean, cuisine also doesn't really respect borders. It travels around, and so you have ingredients that are used on you know from one island to the next. or You have dishes that change as they go. So we look at those um, in classes we do at Salt Lab, which is where we have our cooking classes. We look at that in Salt Kitchen, which is our a restaurant that changes menus daily based on where we are, um, so yeah, it's a way of sort of connecting what's on the plate with where you're going. And of course, so many
1: cruise lines have to plan their meals so far in advance because they're ordering for 365 days in a, in a calendar year. So there's so many steaks, so many duck, so many fish, so many you know, right? Some of them they can order way in advance. Some of them they pick up locally but this is a different approach. Well, we do we do
6: a bit of of all of the above. We, you know, we we do have to look at the menus pretty far in advance because you never know if, you know, there might be a great market on Sunday, but the ship gets in on Saturday, or there might be a place where you know you can pick up amazing prawns but there's bad weather and you have to skip that port. So we do have to work uh, closely with procurement, who, uh, if they're listening, I apologize uh, for coming <laughs> up with it, with, for Barbara and I coming up with this project together, uh, because it does make their job pretty complicated, because we're looking at, you know, we're changing, again, we're changing the menu every day. So it, it, it adds a level of complexity and ambition uh, that, that is uh, exciting for, I think, the, the diner, uh, but it's is, is hard on the crew for sure.
1: But it's also participatory.
6: Yes. So we have many ways that you can get involved. You can uh, roll up your sleeves and put on an apron and pick up a sharp knife in Salt Lab. We have classes. Uh, those also are based on, you know, uh, dishes and ingredients and traditions uh, connected to where you're going. Um, in the uh, What's special about, you know, you're asking what's new on Silver Nova. What's special here is that. Uh, Salt Lab has has graduated and has 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 now has a penthouse view, uh, so it's up on deck ten rather than uh, uh, deck four on on Silver Dawn and Silver um, Moon, and that gives us a bigger space and a beautiful uh, space, uh, which I hope you'll have a chance to try with me soon. And um, so in the evenings we're doing a kind of chef's table concept there, so it's a private dinner for a maximum of eighteen people at a time. Um, and it's interactive. You're not cooking, but you're talking to the chef. You're being cooked for by someone, and there's a kind of one-to-one uh, connection in the way that you would get in a in a you know a sushi restaurant or in a rest in, in a small restaurant where you really have that sort of chef's table intimate and, experience. And
1: you now have the capability based on the equipment that you have on board, the refrigeration systems you have on board, the freezers, everything to be able to offer that.
6: Yeah, we've got we've got cold. We've got hot. <laughs> We've got everything we need,
1: but I was saying, you know, in the old days.
6: Oh yes, in yeah, the yeah. old
1: days, you know, it was prime rib and uh, maybe baked Alaska.
6: Well, I think, know? I mean, to me, I'm I'm relatively new to this industry. I come from storytelling. I come from media, um, but it was fascinating to me to learn uh, and to think about a little bit that the the tradition, the the history of cruising is is that you were looking for consistency. You were looking to make sure that you had that Perfect Beef Wellington, whether you were sailing in the Caribbean or in India or in the Antarctic. Um, and, and, the, and the pastors came to depend on that too. Yeah, and we still have that. I mean, this is you know, one of nine venues you can uh, eat on, uh, on board. Um, but I think there's a real desire, there's a real curiosity and hunger for, uh, for also being able to, to vary it for not novelty, for not for novelty's sake, but to connect to where you're going through the food. What's your biggest challenge? Procurement is definitely one. I mean, I think also just menu design. You know, sometimes we love the idea that we're we're changing menus constantly based on where we're going, but sometimes if you're, you know, two neighboring Greek islands, they may eat very similar things. And so we're looking for ways that we can express, uh, you know, the, the ingredients and traditions of these places, uh, but not have to dig too deep for, for you know, arcane uh, uh, or... It, 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 ingredients or or recipes but I think I mean really it's just keeping the programming fresh and so that's everything from bringing on new regional experts so they help us design the menus they help us come on they come on board and they help teach the classes and then we we haven't talked about off the ship we do shore experiences
1: well I want to talk about that when we come back we're talking to Adam Sachs the, the storyteller and of course the director of salt sea and land taste right here on Silver Nova back with more of me and Adam are you hungry yet? Right after this.
0: Please remain seated with your seatbelt fastened. Ion Travel will be right back. Now, back to I on Travel.
1: And we're back. Peter Greenberg here on board the brand new Silver Nova, sailing between Fort Lauderdale and Cozumel, Mexico. I should also say to everybody that once we get off the ship in Cozumel, it continues on for a 77-day grand voyage. I will not be on board. I'm jealous. But while we're here, we're going to check out the Sea and Land Taste Lab as well as the chef's table. But one of the things that you do, Adam, is really the shore excursions. It's not going to... Uh, to a tchotchke store it's it's not going to a t-shirt shop you're actually going to to places where you're actually hanging out with local chefs as well
6: yeah the idea is to uh, take some of the experiences that i was lucky enough to do as a as a travel and food journalist where you not just go to places and have a great meal which is wonderful and that's part of the experiences but also go behind the scenes talk to chefs talk to producers winemakers cheese makers, uh the people who who can really tell the stories about why people eat this way
1: I mean, I remember when we were in Portugal, we were doing all sorts of crazy tastings in the middle of nowhere.
6: Yeah, we. I mean, we have we have great ones. We have we. I think I don't can't remember if you were with us in Crete. We go up to the in the middle of the island, as about as remote a spot in Crete as you can get. And there's a, a, a biodynamic farm where they they just grow an amazing array of things. You go, you 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 see the plants, you see the flowers, you see the olives being turned into olive oil. You pick a bunch of stuff, and then you go to one of the most amazing wood fired hearths. They turn it into like you know you cook with them and they turn it into uh, an incredible meal. We go from sort of uh, I don't want to say basic but very elemental things like that where you're you know you're you're with people who are harvesting the land and cooking over fire, uh, and then we also uh, go with uh, Marco Greco, the Michelin three star uh, chef uh, just outside of Monaco in Menton, whose restaurant was named number one on the world's 50 best list. And you go uh, look at their gardens, you go to their bakery in the market, and then you have a private uh, meal at one of the best restaurants in the world. Of so course, really... the
1: bakery in their market, they bake everything with. Uh, I think they, it's called butter and more butter,
6: <laughs> but also artisanal wheat that they, you know, they brought back to, uh, into existence. And you know, every everything is is ground to a certain uh, you know uh, way. And there's a history. There's there's a provenance to every every you know grain that goes into the, the bread, and it's insanely delicious. So
1: it's not just the food; it's the location, location, location too.
6: I think it's like any great meal. You know what, what the elements that make a great meal and not just what's on the plate. It's who you're with. It's the, you know, the view. It's the the story behind it. It's the experience you have. Um, so all those things add up to, uh, you know, a special food experience.
1: Are tastes changing in terms of what people are really wanting to eat these days? I
6: think, I think so. I mean, I think you want food with a story. I think you want food that has some context. I think you want to know, you know where where it comes from or why it's eaten i think we all want a delicious meal but i think we're some in terms of what we're looking for in experiences i think we want to go a little deeper
1: i've always said on this show i get angry when you ask kids where food comes from and they say the store um so and and if you can understand the process and where it comes from it, it, you value that meal experience. Then. Absolutely,
6: I mean, it, you 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 see people who are working the land. You see people who are raising animals. You see people. We interviewed a, uh, on that first um, trip on uh, Silver Moon in Greece. We interviewed. We went to go visit with with guests a cheesemaker who was talking about his grandmother's sheep and how he had planned to I think become a dentist or a doctor or something and but he got pulled into the family business and he was tearing up talking about you know the process and the history of this and it's it becomes you just have a much deeper connection when you all right so after all the
1: tearing up and the emotional moment how was the cheese
6: <laughs> the tears the salty tears add to the to the taste of the cheese it helps preserve it it's a little uh, so you bought Greek into that secret. story didn't of you? of course I bought you it did. yeah now it's Con- all, all producers are now contractually obligated to cry when they, when they talk to us. But, <laughs> you know, ha- it can be happy tears, but they've got to have some emotion.
1: What's the weirdest
6: or wildest dish you've been able to do? Uh, with salt yeah i mean I, i'm trying to think of weird i don't I, I don't i don't go for the you know i ate a little wiggling worm or something um we haven't we haven't gotten too far into um into uh aboriginal grub. strange strange things <laughs> yeah i'm trying to think i mean one of the this is not weird at all. But one of the most de- surprisingly delicious things is, we went, we were going to um, go see Franco Pepe, who's uh, one of the top, considered the top pizzaiolo, the top pizza maker in, in all of Italy. And on the way, on the on, on the way up from Naples, we stopped. At his cheese maker to see did the, he cry too he doesn't need to he has big okay. tubs of, of, okay. of, of salty water no he laughed a lot he was great um, uh, but we're we're seeing him make the fresh mozzarella a hybrid uh, buffalo and cow milk mozzarella that Franco Pepe has made especially for him but the byproduct of that is essentially fresh ricotta and that and it's still warm and being served that in a little spoon in this you know parking lot of a cheese Maker uh, made all the it, difference in the world. It's just, it, I mean, it, but just taste wise, it was amazing.
1: Adam Sachs, the director of SALT, the salt, I did it wrong again. <laughs> SALT, the sea and land taste project, right here on Silver Sea and of course on the Silver Sea Silver Nova. Adam, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Peter. And I'll look forward to eating in the kitchen tonight.
6: We look forward to having you.
1: I'll try not to cry. <laughs> Be back with more with your emails and your calls right after this.
0: Your flight might be late, but we're on time. ION Travel will be right back. You've been listening to ION Travel with Peter Greenberg. Visit our website at www.petergreenberg.com for more information and sign up for our newsletter. Ion Travel is a CBS Audio Network production.
1: And welcome back to Ion Travel. Peter Greenberg here on board the Silver Nova, the brand new cruise ship from Silver Sea. You know, you can always reach me. Just email me to peter at petergreenberg.com. With your name, phone number, question, or problem, we will solve it right here on the air. In fact, let's go right to the phones out in Philadelphia. I have Joy on the phone. Hey, Joy.
7: Hi, Peter. How are you?
1: I'm very good, thank you. What can I do to help you?
7: Good. I'm going to Dubai in 2025. I wanted to know, I'm going with a group, and they're leaving out of Florida, but I wanted to leave out of Philadelphia. So I'm trying to find the best way that I can go, which is most economical. Is it better for me to leave from Philadelphia and fly over to JFK in New York, flying on the Emirates airline, or would it be more economical for me to fly to Orlando because that's where the group is leaving from, and fly out, you know, to Emirates with them?
1: I have a better idea. You ready? Yeah, you're in
7: Philadelphia. Let me get my pencil. Okay, yes, this, I'm in Philadelphia.
1: This will be an easy one. You don't fly yes. to to New York, and you don't fly to Orlando. You take you just take Amtrak to, to Washington DC and fly
7: out of Dulles. Take Amtrak. Okay.
1: And because to you'll, you'll to Dulles at the airport in Washington DC. Because because uh, okay. Emirates Air has a nonstop flight from Dulles every day to Dubai.
7: Oh really? Okay. There you go. Would I be flying you in the daytime?
1: Uh probably Would not. I, probably oh, not. Though they us- they usually leave in the evening and they usually they're tend to ar- and because of the length of the flight, they tend to arrive okay. in the evening. But uh it's a great airline, great flight. And
7: uh, I'd much rather do that than put you on two separate flights. Got gotcha. you. Okay, so Dulles. Right. Take the Amtrak to Dulles and get the airline from there. Catch the airline from there. You got it. Okay. And one last question yeah. I have. Go ahead. Um, I was just wondering, what are some um, what are some go-to things that you would do while you were there in well, uh, Dubai and, and uh, Abu Dhabi?
1: Okay. Well... First of
7: all... I'm not going to be... Yeah, I'm not going to have a car, and we're only going to be there for like seven days. Okay, you have plenty of time. If you don't
1: have a car, you hire a car. And if you get a map out, remember, Dubai is one of a number of emirates. And the the most fun you can do is get somebody to drive you, and you'll get a visa all the way through the emirates, and you end up in Oman. And you're right there on the beautiful Musandam Peninsula You go swimming with the dolphins. It's unbelievable sunsets. You'll have a great time.
7: Okay. Well, that sounds good to me. There you go. All right. Well, I'm going to do some investigation, and that sounds good. I have like a whole year to figure it all out. And if I have any additional questions, I'll give you another email back or, you know, talk to you on Thursday. You know what? We will stand by. Thank you, Joy. All right.
1: All right. Thanks for calling. You got it. Thanks. Bye. You know what? For those of you who have not been to the Emirates... Get a map out, as I told Joy, because the distances are not great between Dubai and Abu Dhabi. It's a 40-minute ride, right? And a great opportunity to see that emirate. Then there's Sharjah, there's Ras Al Khaimah, which I love. Great opportunities to uh, go in the water, go hiking, see some antiquities, and then, of course, there are smaller emirates like Fujairah. All of these can be day trips out of Dubai. And then the, the longer one, which I mentioned a joy going to, to, to Oman, you get your hotel concierge to set it up for you so that you have a place to stay when you get there. They'll take care of the visa requirement. And now you can spend two and a half days in Oman, which is just magical. You know why? Because they haven't overdeveloped it. And uh, get out on one of the great wooden dows, have a great picnic lunch, go swimming with the dolphins. It's a great way to see it. Uh, because in Dubai, there's only... I mean, after all, there's so many malls you can visit. Um, it's uh, a little bit overdeveloped, whereas the other ele- uh, Emirates aren't, and it might just be a better way to go. So just a thought about that. One other thought, and you know, Joy mentioned she doesn't have a car. The actual costs of you're not going to drive, you are not renting a car, but you can hire a car and a driver, or you can take a taxi. The actual taxi ride, by the way, From uh, Dubai to to Abu Dhabi, it's only about 50 bucks, and uh, it's worth it. So think about that, but do your homework. See what you want to do. You know, some people just want to go out and dune bash. You know what a dune bashing is? You get into like a four-wheel drive, you know, Toyota Highlander, and literally the driver does everything but roll the car going down dunes. Uh, You will come back with sand in every crevice of your body, but it's a great experience. And whatever you do, don't try to take a cell phone photo while it's happening. The phone will go out the window. And you might even go out the window too, but it's a lot of fun. So remember the Emirates, not just Dubai and Abu Dhabi. And then the secret gem, it's Oman. Uh, The Musandam Peninsula is... And if you go at the right time of the day, this is the cool part, you'll see at about 4.30 in the afternoon, as you get into Oman, all these speedboats that are unusual because they have four and five engines on the back of them. Why? Those are the smugglers. And they're the ones going between Oman and and Iran. And they're smuggling washing machines, and dryers, and refrigerators, and cigarettes. Everything you can imagine. It's a great sport. Anyway, now you know. That music means you're out of time for this hour. Stick around when we come back. The travel editor for Town and Country joins me on board the Silver Nova. Back with more of Ion Travel.
0: You've been listening to to Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg. Visit our website at www.petergreenberg.com for more information and sign up for our newsletter. Ion Travel is a CBS Audio Network production. With reporting from around the world, it's time for Eye on Travel with America's number one frontline travel news journalist, Peter Greenberg. And now, the man who travels over 400,000 miles each year. Peter
1: Greenberg, Welcome back, everybody. Peter Greenberg here with you as Ion Travel continues on board the brand new Silver Sea Silver Nova as we cruise from Fort Lauderdale to Cozumel in Mexico. And of course, we've been talking in the first hour about changes in the travel industry as we enter a new year, not to mention the cruise industry and perhaps coming up with an acceptable, I don't know if one exists, definition of luxury. Joining me now, the executive travel editor of Town & Country, Clara Glavcheska. I got the name right. I've known Clara for how many years?
8: At least 20. At least 25. 20. Going yeah. back
1: to our days, actually, at Condé Nast Traveler, exactly. as a matter of fact. Well, welcome aboard the ship. I guess the question becomes, and we were talking about this earlier, I mean, in the year 2024, can we really come up with a definition that makes sense for luxury travel?
8: Yeah, it's it's something I think about a lot as editor um, of Condé Nast Traveler previously and now the travel editor of Town & Country um, with its you know well-to-do audience, so luxury sort of... What what I cover and what I think about, and not I not a bad beat, by the way, not a bad beat, an excellent beat. I think that there is a big definition, a change in the definition of luxury. In my mind, when when we started way back when, you know, it, it meant in hotels, marble bathrooms, and gold-plated faucets. It meant um, it was materials. It was materials, and it was it was materials, and there was a formality to it. Life was formal in the luxury sphere. I always feel. It was about correctness. It was about doing things comme il faut, you know. And that has really changed. And I've been thinking a lot about that on this cruise in particular. Because here we have Silver Sea Nova, which is, you know, one of the top luxury lines, if not the top. Um, and this is their brand new ship, sort of the 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 penultimate. And it's it has a very different feel. Things are just more relaxed. You know, I see people even in the way uh cl- travelers behave there some of them are in the in a tux in the evening not many but it's it's always optional you can if you want to dress up and you get a kick out of it you dress up if you don't want to dress up it's absolutely optional and i see people run the gamut at dinner for instance which is really refreshing um you know the the ship looks different it's 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 a contemporary looking. It's it's not. It's there's nothing fussy about it. It's sort of n- neutral colors.
1: It's chic.
8: It's not know? fluffy and frilly. It's not fluffy and frilly at all. Yeah. It's uh,
1: luxury can also be defined as being functional too.
8: Exactly, e- and everything is super functional. Like I've been analyzing my cabin and how it works, and it's like this perfect little cocoon. This cabin. I don't even have one of the top suites. I just have a really nice m- middle of the you know ladder suite and it's it's wonderful everything is just perfectly designed the way the door shut the way the sound works where the garbage cans are how nothing slides around everything where the light switches are where you can plug in all your devices it's all perfect
1: all right can i talk about you know, light switches n- yes and my, my, my my pet, pet peeve. peeve thank you <laughs> I mean, I don't need to have a tutorial every time I check into a hotel or a cruise line.
8: It makes me insane. Yeah. It makes me insane and also like crawling around to find to find the outlet, which still happens. And it still happens like even in hotels newly renovated hotels, you're often on your hands and knees
1: still. Not good. Not a good look. I'm actually convinced, (laughs) and I hope I'm not angering a lot of people, but I'm actually convinced that most people who design hotels have never spent the night in one because (laughs) it would be obvious to them from day one on three things. Light switches and thermostats. Mm -hmm. Uh, Four things. Light switches, thermostats, TV remote controls, and lighting itself. Yes. Right? I mean... The light switches. I can't spend an hour trying to figure out how to turn it off and turn it on. Right. (laughs) Then then the thermostat, come on, how about, you know, when I built a house, and I've only done it once, don't want to do it ever again. Mm. But when I did it, the contractor was telling me, wow, we got the the -the state-of-the-art heating and air conditioning system for you, and you can adjust this and program it eight days out. I said, hold on. Go to a a used hardware store and get me the old round Honeywell switch Mm -hmm. on and off. off." (laughs) And they look at me like, really? I said oh, this is not negotiable. Yeah, And that's what I put in my house. And guess what? I understand it, right? TV and remote control, you better get there 20 minutes early before your favorite show because you have to figure out how to use the remote control. Absolutely. And then last but not least, the lighting in the room. We can also go beyond that to the lighting in the bathroom. Yes. Because every one of my women friends is always complaining there's not enough light for makeup. Yes. Or there's not enough shelf space for all the crap you guys bring with you okay yes i mean there's such a an change trying to figure defer. out
8: i beg, i don't like your choice of words
1: fine <laughs> all the uh, all the uh necessary items, the items. necessary
8: <laughs> items we bring with us but you
1: understand the point
2: i totally understand um, your point <laughs> and
1: and then of course the lighting itself every hotel designer thinks they're going to win points with me by by trapping me with mood lighting Right. right. I want to be able to read in my room. Right. I want to be able to think in my room. Right. I want to have, have the option. That's luxury the, when you have options. Sure. To be able to see if I want to be bright or moody. Yeah. If you trap me with mood lighting, you put me in a very bad right. mood.
8: Right. Well, on this ship, I have to say, it, it it has, you can go from mood lighting to very bright plus, easily. Plus, you've got I've, all the glass. Yeah, plus, all the glass. My goodness, and there's if, lots if, of natural if, light.
1: If, yeah. Unless you're Dracula. Yeah. You know, <laughs> I mean, the point is, yeah. you want the light, and boy, you get the light.
8: Yeah. So I just would like to add something that's non um, light switch, yeah, related, um, which for me is like the the big thing about if we're talking about cruising sure. since you're on a ship right now. Um, I I, what I'm most excited about in the in the cruise sphere is that combination of. Uh, adventurous environments and luxury on board the fact that you can go to the most extreme places in the world like Antarctica or the Arctic or the Amazon or you know around Greenland and, and then you are back on board and it is fine dining in all kinds of ways,
1: I mean, it, it's incredibly such a, it's comfortable su- rooms. It is such a juxtaposition. It that is
8: almost shocking. Kayaking <laughs> this in the is glaciers, possible, ca- you know?
1: kayaking in the middle of icebergs, and an hour later, strawberries.
8: Exactly. You know, it's it's mind blowing. It yeah. really, it's really mind blowing. And I think that is actually the great sort of achievement of the of the of the cruise industry these days. You They've know, been able the, to do the, the both. way they have evolved to to be able to do this. That you have absolute adventure and absolute luxury and comfort and all your creature comforts and when you think it's about it, absolute something.
1: adventure it's on every different level it's on every different level i mean you're not just exactly. doing thrill-seeking behavior exactly but you're getting out there
8: exactly yeah it lets you be out there in a way that something has never been possible i mean it's, it's a it's, it's almost like a revolution and in, and in, in travel i feel that I don't. Not sure enough people realize just how incredible it is that you're able to do these things.
1: But of course, I think you speak from personal experience. Once you do realize it, mm-hmm. you can't get enough. of
8: you it. You can't get enough of it. Yeah, I was on a, a two week cruise in the Arctic in June around Greenland, and I thought two weeks. That's you know that was the, my, the only option. And I thought, how am I gonna? How am I? What am I gonna do for two weeks in the Arctic? And it just flew by. I, I was so sorry to leave on my 14th day. I could have, you know, just waking up at 2 a.m. with the sun shining and the icebergs floating by. I mean, it's my—it's just an incredible experience, yeah.
1: So, in terms of definition of luxury, yeah. it's evolved.
8: Sh- sure has, sure has. And I, I'm very interested to, to sort of start reading the tea leaves to see what's next, you know, like what is, what, what's next? Are we... I mean, it's hard to imagine. It's hard to imagine,
1: but Clara, I'm sure there will be. Clara Glovchitska, <laughs> travel editor for Town & Country, my old pal. Thanks for joining me. Th- thank you, Peter. And coming up next, back with more from the Silver Sea Silver Nova right after this.
0: Your flight might be late, but we're on time. Ion Travel will be right back. Once again, here's Peter Greenberg.
1: Peter Greenberg here back with you as Ion Travel continues on board the brand new Silver Sea Silver Nova as it sails between Fort Lauderdale and Cozumel in Mexico. Of course, you can always reach me. You know the drill. Email me to peter at petergreenberg.com with your name, phone number, question or problem. We will start right here and solve it right here (laughs) on the air. Now, every ship has to have a godmother, and I'm pleased to announce we do have a godmother on this ship. In fact, she joins us now. But, uh, you know, we, there, there have been queens who have been godmothers, there have been uh, first ladies who have been godmothers, and now we have a legendary chef and restaurateur who's a godmother. Uh, it's not fair to say she's from New Orleans or that she's in New Orleans, because she started in St. Lucia, and she's been everywhere. Working, by the way, for everybody that she's worked for or worked with has been on this show. <laughs> from Daniel Ballou to Norm Van Aken, from Norm's and I knew Norm in Florida, of yes. course. Uh, her name is Nina Compton. And the name of the restaurant, well, I should say there's more than one restaurant, but what's what's the main restaurant in New Orleans? Uh, Pen. And said so appropriately. Yes. Which means?
9: Brother Rabbit. <laughs> or the Friendly Rabbit.
1: Nina, welcome to the show.
9: Thank you for having me.
1: So let's start with the obvious question. This is the first time you've ever been a godmother. Oh, yes. What does that mean to you?
9: It's it's an honor. When they reached out to me, I said, I have to do what? <laughs> Because I've never been asked as a chef to christen a a ship. Um, It's pretty special because it's, you know, I I was, we were having lunch after the ceremony and understanding it takes five years to build a cruise ship. So there's a lot of thought put into this ship that we're on right now. And it's it's truly a blessing to be the godmother.
1: Now, obviously, in New Orleans, you're bringing a St. Lucian approach to it as well. Yes. What does that mean in terms of cuisine?
9: You know... uh, People always compare New Orleans to the most northern, you know, star in the Caribbean, and it truly is. And it's when I first went to New Orleans for the first time; it was really, it it felt very normal to me. It felt very familiar, um, the the buildings, the, the warmth, vibe. the warmth, everything. Them, the, and it's it it kind of sucked me in. And I think it's the most captivating city that you will ever visit.
1: Of course, you were trained at the CIA, but not the CIA everybody else thinks about. it, But the Culinary Institute of America, the one up near in New York, right? Yes. Yeah. Yes. We know it.
9: Which is, uh, it's a beautiful campus. I haven't been back since I left, but it's definitely evolved to having a brewery and so many other kitchens. It's truly spectacular.
1: Well, since you just mentioned the word evolved, let's talk about the, the evolution of food right now in America. I think everybody, with maybe five exceptions, describes themselves as a foodie now. Yes. I mean, how do you now cater to that? Because, you know, if you open up a menu at a restaurant, and this is always is interesting to me in terms of the choices that people make in the, in the kitchen. Right? Sure. If you open up a menu right now, you know, I'll take this back. If you open up a menu five years ago, you would know exactly where to find the chicken fingers. Right. the mac and cheese, <laughs> Right. Now every dish has its own lexicon. Yes. Every dish has its own descriptive phrase. Uh, it's either very personalized, it's like my my aunt Gertrude's meatloaf, or it's got so many ingredients and from so many farms. It needs a paragraph before you find out what the dish is. Sure. Right? Yeah. How do you strike a balance there?
9: I, you know, we were just discussing it earlier that, you know, people dining out is it's more common, whereas you know, decades ago people were going out for. A birthday and Special a anniversary, uh where people are going out three, four times, five times, or some people go out every day of the week. So
1: what you're telling me right now is America has the most underutilized kitchens in
9: Yes. <laughs> Brand new. There it is. By the way,
1: all you, if you want to prove that uh, that point, just go to Atlanta. <laughs> Nobody eats at home. Yes. Every night they're out.
9: Yes. And it, it's a beautiful thing as a chef because you have people that are understanding ingredients, flavor profiles. So we're able to push the envelope more than ever now with the diner because they're excited about eating, you know, different foods. They want the story. Yes. And it's a story that is coming from different backgrounds, different countries, and people are, they're listening.
1: So here's the challenge question. Okay. People want more. They want bragging rights. They want to be able to say they had that dish but isn't the challenge for you and every other chef not to overdo it, not to overload it, like to try to, in some cases, just keep it simple?
9: Yes. It's it's um it's definitely a, a something I learned when I worked for Scott Conant, where I was doing a tasting for him. Now
1: explain it. Scott Conant.
9: Scott Conant is, he was my, my mentor. He is a beautiful person and a chef and very thoughtful and, he really taught me the power of restraint. And I was doing a spring t- tasting menu for him. And he said, there's too much going on in this plate. You only need four or five ingredients. And I said, but why? We should showcase, you know, truffles and sunchokes and this. He's like, no, it's like everything is muddled. And that's really the the beauty of Italian cuisine, where it is four or five of the best ingredients, the best olive oil, the best tomatoes, the freshest basil. So understanding that made me realize, you don't need ten ingredients; you just need five of the best ingredients.
1: Is that where you got the title, the, the gnocchi queen? I
9: did. I never, I never dabbled in pasta making before, and the production that we had at Scarpetta was tremendous. It was um, a family from Dominican Republic that had been with Scott for for many years, and they were they were craftsmen. And I loved watching them, and I was able to integrate into the program and, and really understand how to make fresh
1: pasta. Now, you mentioned the best olive oil.
9: Mm-hmm.
1: All right, now I'm going to put you on the spot. Don't do that. <laughs> I'm doing it right now. No, I have to. Because you know, I, I, every time I go shopping, I, I like to laugh about this. There it is, extra virgin, mm-hmm. extra virgin. I want to come up with a whole new marketing campaign and come up with a brand of, of, of olive oil called Bad girl. <laughs> How about just bad girl? Yes. Right? But seriously, where does the best olive oil come from?
9: I, th- I think that's that's a tough one because people always think it's from Italy. Some people argue that it's from Greece or oh, it's from California, but there are a lot of olive oils that are from all over the world that are very, very good.
1: Is there an American olive oil that's great?
9: There is. There is. California produces some really beautiful olive oil. And I I think that people are understanding, you know, the process of making it, understanding it's about the temperature, the soil, all those factors have to to, to play their part. And I think not every area in the world can create the best olive oil. It's really about the climate.
1: My favorite olive oil is from Malta. Oh, really? Yeah. From, From the island of Gozo. Okay.
9: So good check to know. That out. Check I, that will, out. I will. I it, will. It's it's pretty incredible because I think once you understand the process of it and you have the access to it, you can create something really beautiful. You
1: just said the magic words. If you can understand the process, that's when you value the product. Mm-hmm. And have you gone on a search for the best of everything?
9: I try. I, I really try to, whenever I travel, eat like a local. I don't want to go to the busiest restaurant. I want to eat. If I lived in Portugal, or if I lived in, I don't know, Sao Paulo, I want to go to the markets. I want to eat the street food. I really want to understand how they eat.
1: And isn't that a lot about what Silver Sea is trying to do yes. in their cooking program here on the ship?
9: It's pretty. It's pretty spectacular when you come on a cruise ship where there's so much thought into each port has a dish that they represent. Because I think when people come on these cruises, they're not able to immerse themselves into the local cuisine, as they should. Um, But Silver Sea is able to do that for you.
1: You know, for me, uh, and I I say this not as an elitist American traveler, but so many Americans, their idea of of an adventure when they travel is to stay in an American-branded hotel, order a cheeseburger, and think they've roughed it.
9: Yes, 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 yes. Right? Yeah, I think people really... I encourage people whenever you travel, because the beauty of for me when I travel is exploring something I've never had before. So when I went to Madeira in September, I've never had limpets before, and they're all over the place, and it's just like this beautiful shellfish that is super briny and super tasty.
1: When we were in the in the Azores, mm-hmm. I went out on a limpet hunt. Oh wow! And to rocky Coast, which are very d- difficult to get down, and we went out limpet hunting. And then we actually cooked cook it right there. Oh wow! You know, little garlic, little
7: yeah, they, olive oil. They love
9: they love garlic and olive oil over there. They <laughs> really do. We're talking. Yeah. It 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 just shows you that you're. It's it's a memory that you'll have for the rest of your life. Of you know, if you come to Key West and you have conch. That will be with you forever.
1: By the way, limpets difficult to source in the U.S. I'm sure, yes. <laughs> so they won't be on your menu anytime no, soon. No, 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 no. Is there one thing you put on your menu? I ask this of all the chefs, so you're going to get asked the same question. You thought everybody's going to love this dish. Nobody liked it.
9: We've we've had a we've had a couple of those where you know we. We have things like curried goat that, you know, a lot of people come like, oh, we've never had goat before. So they're adventurous and they try it out.
1: But that's the number one thing on your menu.
9: That's the number one thing. But you also have people that we do blackened pig ears that people are like, oh, pig ears. And then they try this really great. But we've had some misses. And it's, you know, as a chef, I think that we, in our head, we're like, this is going to be the the best dish. People are going to really love it. And then they're like, oh, this is mm -mm, not for me.
1: (laughs) Nina, can I ask you to hold that thought for a second? We're talking to Nina. Compton, the godmother of the Silver Nova, and of course the legendary chef in New Orleans. Back with more with me and Nina on board the Silver Nova right after this.
0: Have a travel question or problem? Just email Peter at peter at petergreenberg.com and we'll solve it on the air. Need more information on what you've heard? Have a travel question or comment? Just log
1: on to petergreenberg.com. Now, here's Peter. And we're back, Peter Greenberg, here as Ion Travel continues on board the Silver Sea Silver Nova sailing from Fort Lauderdale to Cozumel, Mexico. We're talking to Nina Compton from St. Lucia, but really now from New Orleans, with three restaurants there. The restaurants are
9: Compella Pen, Buy what American Bistro, and Nina's Creole Cottage.
1: And how did the rabbit come to be the name of the rabbit? The
9: the rabbit was a, it was a fun one. So when we got the opportunity to open our restaurant in New Orleans, I start I had a whole list of you know patois terms that we use back home, and I made a list and I started Googling to see if those words were present in in Louisiana. And copelape popped up. It was from a book that I grew up. And it was at Laura Plantation and it was something where I'm like, this is meant to be. And the name is, that's how it became.
1: I'm going to ask you to take off your chef's hat now and put on your restaurant goer hat. <laughs> yes. And tell me the the one thing you dislike about most restaurants today.
9: I think what I, I I think the biggest thing that really stands out for me is, you know, when people go out they want to have good food and I think that the theatrics of the foams and the the powders and all of those things it's I like craveable food. I want to use my spoon and scrape up every single last drop of that sauce. I want to ask for more bread so I can clean that plate. And when you have this deconstructed, you know, dish, it doesn't hit my soul and i think that i think chefs kind of get away from the soulfulness of a dish and focus more on the the look
1: on the showmanship
9: on the showmanship and for me i don't crave that i don't crave. i don't crave you know a a carrot form with a carrot powder i want to have you know a beautiful carrot soup that has you know cumin or spiced yogurt like on a cold day that That warms my soul. So I think that most chefs are so focused on the look and eating with your eyes where it doesn't satisfy my soul.
1: And of course, we're now living in times where things cost so much more. Your raw ingredients, even Mm -hmm. the basics. Oh, yes. Even the olive oil.
7: Even, yes.
1: Is costing more money. How do you maintain I've seen more and more restaurants go out of business, mm-hmm. triggered perhaps during COVID. Yes, but even more today. Yes, we all know that one of the great male fantasies, from at least as a guy, was, "Hey, I'm going to have my own restaurant." Right. I would fail in about an hour. Right. I mean, it wouldn't last long. But what's your biggest challenge? Uh, because it's getting so expensive now. Uh,
9: you know, it's it's a hard business. It was a hard business before the pandemic, and I think you know, I think the ratio was. I think one in three or one in five restaurants close within the year. And that number is definitely increased. It's probably three out of, you know, four restaurants close because it, it is hard. You know, when you have your costs go up, you know, you're paying your staff more because everybody should get paid what they deserve. Also, you have the food costs going up and then you have shortages where, you know, we had points where we couldn't get coconut milk, you know, because just the supply and demand so you're paying three times as much uh, you saw eggs going up you saw milk going up you saw flour going up so all did the, you
1: see anything going down no nothing
9: nothing was going down no. Every, everything was going up and i think a lot of people don't associate you know all these wars that are happening around the world are affecting the supply chain um so even things like equipment you know are three times as much now so a fryer you can't buy a fryer today and get it installed tomorrow because it's going to be a six month lead time and a lot of those things are disrupted during the pandemic, but I, I think it's um it's it's a hard business. It's hard business now. But I think if you you really have to look at your invoices, you have to look at your waste. You know, we try and use as much as we can when nothing goes in the trash and focusing on locality, you know, am I getting my tomatoes from the farmer that's two miles down instead of getting it from California? It's all connected together.
1: You know what gets me nuts though? Knowing how much food is costing now? When you go to a restaurant for quote unquote fine dining, you're there for a great culinary experience. Mm-hmm. You know you're going to be spending money for the food. There's not a surprise there. Right. But all of a sudden, I see in the upper left hand of the me- side of the menu, I say, if you want bread served at dinner, we're adding an additional dollar thirty three to your to your bill. So why would you even tell me that? Right. I mean, bury it in the veal. Right. I mean, why right. would you destroy my value of the rest of the meal?
9: Well, I I think a lot of people when they when they di- especially now because dining out, it does add up. And I think, you know, my husband and I, we always try and be very price sensitive because when we go out, and just like you, when you go to a fine dining experience, you know what the prices are, but then you get the bill, and you're a sticker shock. So it doesn't matter how great of a meal you've had, but you get that fine and be like, oh, that's a lot of money. And the see, trust- I get the
1: bill like, okay, who had the bread? Right. No. no, no. <laughs>
9: But, you know, it, it, it makes you think about, when will I come back here again? And I think the chances of when you're not approachable or affordable to people, you become that very special occasion restaurant.
1: So now we're at that sort of that turning point, if you will, where you may be on the threshold of that.
9: Yeah. it, it It's very tricky, and it's it's really about, you know, we have to be so creative of getting people in where we're doing things like a tiki night just to make things fun because, you know, coming out of the pandemic, a lot of people are traumatized and we want to bring the fun back into the restaurants where people can, you know, it's New Orleans, they want to dress up for tiki night or we did, you know, a hip-hop night and we had a DJ and, you know, just to let things, just change it up, you know, where it's, restaurants are, people think it's about food and service, but you're actually in the business of people and it's about making the staff have a good time at work, and your guests have a good time.
1: Have you done a rabbit night?
9: No, that's a tricky one
1: because <laughs> I, I we don't
9: even have a rabbit on the menu at Compella Pen because... I think people are so they have this image of this white fluffy bunny and you know why did <laughs> Don't you Don't
1: kill the right? bunny Yeah
9: nobody <laughs> nobody wants to see that so it, it's it's a tricky one.
1: Nina, we're gonna take a quick break. Hope everybody sticks around. We're gonna be back with more of me, Nina Compton, and the Silver Nova as Ion Travel returns right after this.
0: Please remain seated with your seatbelt fastened. Eye on Travel will be right back. Now, back to Eye on Travel.
1: Peter Greenberg here, back with you on board the Silver Nova as we're cruising from Fort Lauderdale to Cozumel, Mexico. We've been talking to Super Chef and the <laughs> godmother of the Silver Nova, uh, Nina Compton. Nina, I've got to ask you the question because it's the elephant in the room, and that's tipping. Yes. I remember not that long ago, uh, one of the, you know, the famous New York City restaurateurs, Danny Meyer, who's got lots of restaurants, sort of shocked the industry with whatever he thought was going to be a game changer, saying, okay, from now on, no tipping but we're building it into the price of the food. It's a more equitable way to take care of our staff, not just the waiters, not just the busboys, but the guys washing the dishes sure. too. But it didn't quite work, did it?
9: It didn't, and I, I really hope that it did because this is the only country where it is tipping. You go to Europe, and it's it's all built in. But I think that we've had so many years of mentally going in that if you order, you know the blackened salmon that you're going to tip on extra that. So it's very hard to condition people's mind that you don't have to worry about it. And I remember going to Gramercy Tavern when he did do the no tipping. And it's all built in.
1: But let's let's go back to, to the hierarchy in the restaurant, right? At a fine dining establishment, those waiters can make a lot of money.
9: They do. They do. And it, it's, you know, tipping was created um, from Europe, and when American travelers went to Europe and a tip was meant to be an extra of doing an exceptional job, like, wow, you blew me away.
1: But you know the derivation of the word tip? To ensure promptness. Yeah. T-I-P. Yeah. So it wasn't about great service in the, in the bigger sense. It was about just get it here.
9: Yeah, yeah. And it, I think that we have gone so far away from that, that that is people are dependent on the tips. That... You know, if you're getting paid two nineteen that you are trying to sell the wine, the caviar, the truffles to get that check average up and get a higher tip, it's just not sustainable. And I think that it's But what
1: about the what about the guys washing the dishes?
9: Well, this this is where I'm gonna get to. So a lot of restaurants now coming out of the pandemic have done a service charge, which gets split up between everybody equally, or some people do an extra tip line for the kitchen because it is, it is expensive to run a restaurant. And you know, with minimum wages going up, which are very high where you have, I think in Portland servers are making $18 an hour plus tips. It's a lot of money. And you know, it's the economics, It we need to, we need to try and figure this out of how do we move forward where it is sustainable and equitable for everybody in the restaurants.
1: But you know, well, one example is okay. You go to a restaurant like Balud in New York, and that that tab can it goes up. It can be in four figures. Yep. And all of a sudden, the waiter or well, the waitress gets a four hundred dollar tip, and the guy who's washing the dishes says, "That's what I make in a month."
9: In a month, and it's 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 just the way that it's set up, and it's very but hard. But the no
1: tipping thing didn't work.
9: It didn't, and I think it, it worked. It didn't, I'm sorry, it did not work because you had the guests who didn't understand the concept of it, of how things are built in. And also, some of the staff didn't understand how it was broken down. Because mentally, if you're going to say there's no tipping and you're going to divvy it up between everybody, some people are like, well, why does a dishwasher get get paid the same as me? I'm the one selling the bottle of Cristal that's, you know, $2,000. Why does he get a, a piece of that? So it's like understanding we gotta break those barriers down in order to move forward and it's it's very hard to do because we've been conditioned for so many years of this is the way it is. But you go to Europe and it's you know, twenty-five euro for this sandwich and it's all built in and nobody asks any questions.
1: Can we break the cycle?
9: I don't know if we can. I think people need it, I think there needs to be some transparency on how it's broken down. And that's how we can move forward. I think people are just not understanding because for so long they've been like, oh, it just tipped twenty percent.
1: But of course that doesn't pay somebody's hospital bills and it doesn't pay anybody's, you know, health and welfare. It
9: no it, it doesn't. And I, I think there's a lot of things that are passed on to to um owners of restaurants because you know, healthcare is it should be a right for everybody in this country and it's not. There's so many people that don't have health insurance because even if the company says we'll pay 50%, they're like, I can't afford to pay the other 50%. And they are not getting the proper treatment or health care to thrive. And I think that that should not be passed on to the business. It should be the government takes care of everybody.
1: Nina Compton from St. Lucia, <laughs> now New Orleans. James Beard Award winner and, of course, the godmother of the Silver Nova and the owner of Compare Le Pain, just to say that while I'm coming to New Orleans, I'll be tipping. (laughs) We'd love to have you. And back with more of Ion Travel right after this.
0: Your flight might be late, but we're on time. Ion Travel will be right back. Been listening to Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg. Visit our website at www.petergreenberg.com for more information and sign up for our newsletter. Ion Travel is a CBS Audio Network production.
1: Peter Greenberg here back with you as Ion Travel continues on board the brand new Silver Sea, Silver Nova, sailing between Fort Lauderdale with a stop in Key West and then into Cozumel, Mexico, before they embark on a 77-day grand voyage all the way through the Panama Canal up and down South America. Wish I could go, but at least I'm happy to be on for this leg of the trip. If you've got any kind of problem, you know what to do, you email me to peter at petergreenberg.com with your name, phone number, question, or problem. We will solve it right here on the air. To wrap up what has got to be a tumultuous week in air safety, starting with the incident that happened a week ago on board the Alaska Airlines Boeing 737 MAX-9, it calls into question not just the chain of custody or the assembly line, not just the inspection work that either did or did not happen by Boeing or by their subcontractor, or I might even say subcontractors. It calls into question the safety culture at the FAA how they define their relationship with the airlines, how they define their relationship with the manufacturers. The last time I looked, the FAA was a regulatory agency charged with enacting an and enforcing safety. And if they're understaffed and if they're underbudgeted, they can't do their job. But actually, quite frankly, it's worse than that because this safety culture was disrupted a long time ago by the biggest player on the block, the manufacturers who were allowed to up until recently, to self-certify their own planes as safe. Are you kidding me? If I built a chair and I told you I declared the chair safe, trust me, you don't want to sit in the chair. You need that second voice, that second pair of eyes, that expertise to look at that chair and let everybody know it's safe to sit in it. Well, let's go way beyond that to people's lives at stake with state-of-the-art aircraft. Who's inspecting it? Well, up until recently, the inspectors on the on the assembly line were employees of Boeing, paid by Boeing, and they were the safety inspectors. Three words come to mind. Conflict of interest. Am I really going to stop the assembly line because I think there's a problem with a bolt? Really? My, my salary depends on that assembly line moving forward. You couldn't have a bigger conflict of interest if you tried. Well, after the two terrible 737 MAX crashes in Indonesia and Ethiopia, that procedure was called into question. In fact, it was revealed. And thanks to people like Congressman Peter DeFazio, uh, no longer uh, a member of Congress, but when he was on the House Transportation Committee and Aviation Committee, they made sure that Boeing is no longer going to be allowed to certify their own planes as safe. So that's the good piece of the news. All right, so who takes the place? of that paid Boeing employee. It should be an FAA employee, someone who is nonpartisan, someone whose only job is to ensure the plane is safe and if not, to enforce consequences. Well, has that happened? Not exactly, why? Because the FAA is understaffed and under budgeted. But if you think that's bad, it gets worse. Now. In fairness, before it gets worse, let me just share with you a piece of good news. In fact, it's very good news. We've just celebrated the 30 safest years in aviation since aviation started. I'm talking about commercial aviation. We've only had, to my knowledge, in this country, three fatal accidents, right? We had the uh, uh, November 11th, 2001, Two months after September 11th, we had the American Airlines Airbus go into Rockaway Bay when the tail fell off. We had the Comair flight in Lexington, Kentucky. And then in 2009, near Buffalo, we had the Colgan Air flight. That's it. How remarkable is that? How amazing is that? We should be celebrating that. By the way, we should. But we, we can't do it without proper context. Why? Because there's no real way we can improve that safety record. It's that good. What's the challenge? Can we maintain it? And my argument has always been, at least in the last 10 years, no, we can't. Why? Because of the exact same problems we're talking about at the FAA. The FAA looks at the airlines and the manufacturers as their clients. They're not their clients. We're their clients. That's number one. But wait, folks, I told you it was about to get worse. Here it comes. So many airlines now are outsourcing their critical maintenance procedures to overseas MROs. That stands for maintenance repair organizations. Now, there's nothing really wrong with that. There's one in in El Salvador. There's one in the Philippines, many other countries. And I've, I've been there. They do very good work. One small problem. There's no oversight. Nobody's inspecting the work. And if an FAA inspector wants to go there, he has to get permission and prove there's a reason to go. There's no proof needed. You're going to inspect. But wait, it gets even worse. If he, in fact, is given permission, he then has to give that organization a seven-day notice that they're coming. That's like the health department telling a restaurant, we're going to check out the kitchen in a week. You and I both know that kitchen will be gleaming and shining. So, things to think about. As we end the show on board the Silver Nova, things to think about as passengers, as citizens, and as voters. I want to thank Amanda Morris, our producer, Jeff Ryder doing the boards in Connecticut, and of course the staff and the amazing crew of the Silver Sea Silver Nova. We'll see you next week, everybody, from another remote location somewhere around the world. Bye-bye, everybody.
0: You've been listening to Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg. Visit our website at www.petergreenberg.com for more information and sign up for our newsletter. Ion Travel is a CBS Audio Network production.